If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Genesis 21. Genesis chapter 21. We continue in our study of the life of Abraham, a man called by God to leave his family, his country, his people, a man given promises by God, and a man who, to some degree, experienced some of the fulfilling of those promises, but most of them he would not. Yet he was a man who, like the rest of humanity, struggled with fear, and as a result, oftentimes chose the wrong path. The first time was happened when the famine happened in, in Canaan, and he went down to Egypt. He told people, he told his wife, tell people that you are in fact my sister. He was showered with gifts by Pharaoh, who took Sarah into his household. God intervened graciously. The second time we saw last week was 24 years later, when he moved into an area ruled by Abimelech. He again told his wife, no longer Sarai, but Sarah, to say she was his sister. Abimelech is confronted by God in a dream. God intervenes um, and tells him, listen, you, you're as good as dead. You've taken another man's wife. Uh, again, God graciously intervened and nothing untoward happened. In between these two events, 24 years apart, there were actions that could also be seen as driven by fear. You know, Abraham was afraid that Pharaoh would kill him for his wife. He was afraid Abimelech would kill him for his wife. But then he was also afraid that he would never have the son. And so on the advice of his wife, uh, he took Hagar, her maid, handmaid, and uh, she conceived and bore a son, Ishmael. Last week, we looked at the second time that Abraham told Sarah, you know, tell people you're my sister. And on the one hand, um, we might be tempted to excuse his lie to say, listen, it's been 24 years. God promised him and, and nothing has happened. And so on some level, we might understand his, his fear and his sense that maybe God is not going to keep his promise. On the other hand, in very recent history, God has told him not once but twice that within the year, Sarah is going to bear you a son. So if God has made these promises directly and face to face, why would they then turn around and do what he did? Well, it was in fact fear. Fear was behind his lies. We also saw in the previous chapter that fear drove his nephew Lot that he's rescued by the angels at least twice, maybe a third time when they say, listen, go to the mountains. He's like, yeah, that's too far. How about Zoar, this little town? And they say, okay. But then we read later on, he was afraid to stay in Zoar, so they didn't, he did end up going to the mountains. Um, you may remember that Zoar means little, so that he was afraid of something little. Uh, we find people driven by fear. I don't know that we are that different all these centuries later. Now we come to chapter 21. And last week at the end of the sermon, we read the first seven verses here. It is the birth of Isaac. God has kept his promise. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. 
Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. I point out to you that God was gracious to Sarah. And it's true, but the NIV here fails to convey fully what was being said. Uh, In other translations, in the King James and the English Standard Version, the Lord visited Sarah. This is a wonderful phrase that we find uh, throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. Um, Yes, the Lord was gracious, but the language conveys this wonderful idea. Um, When Moses went back to Egypt, God had told him, listen, you're going to lead the people out of Egypt. And he goes and he tells them, and it said, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. God had visited his people. When Naomi, who had left uh, Bethlehem and gone to Moab because of the famine, uh, her husband dies, her two sons die. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And then there's the story of Hannah, who was barren. Her husband had two wives. The other wife had children. She did not. And she made a vow to God, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And she kept that promise. And after she gave him, we read, Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. I mean, we don't have to stay in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the song of Zacharias, uh, the father of John, on the eighth day when he was named and circumcised, uh, John was, Zacharias said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He, in fact, visited Sarah, and he did for her what he had promised. This was the nature of his visitation. And the timing was exactly what it should be at the very time God had promised him. In chapter 17, um, by this time next year, in chapter 18, about this time next year. So it's just at the time God had promised a son that, in fact, Isaac is born. And yet there's something unexpected. Abraham is 100 years old. Yes, God had made promises, but boy, Abraham is 100, Sarah is 90, and yet they have a son. And then I would point out that Abraham was obedient to the covenant. He circumcised Isaac on the eighth day, indicating that the covenant was made with Abraham. And now that Isaac comes along, it's made with Isaac as well. He is a child of the covenant. But I'm really struck by, I mean, Sarah and Abraham must have been over the moon. They must have been overjoyed that they have this son. And sometimes when we are really happy at what God has done, we we forget to be obedient. Just like the leper in the Gospel of Mark. 
where Jesus heals him, he touches him, he heals him, and he says, okay, don't tell anyone, but show yourself to the priest as a testimony. And this man is filled with joy, and he blabs it everywhere, contrary to what Jesus had commanded. And Jesus can no longer enter towns because of this man's disobedience. Sarah is delighted. She, God has brought me laughter. Everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. I don't know Sarah. I've not met Sarah. I have no idea what she looked like, what she sounded like. But when I read these words, I hear her delight and her joy. And I share in that joy. What a wonderful thing it is. And I'm reminded of Psalm 126, one of the songs of ascent. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. The Lord had done a great thing for Sarah, and she was filled with joy. But there's trouble. Let's begin reading in verse number 18. I'm sorry, verse number 8. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever, whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave, it, gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. So the Lord, or so, so God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave a, the boy to, a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt things to consider in this passage. First of all, Isaac grows up, he's growing, and there is a day on which he is weaned. And on that day there was a feast. This is a custom that is unfamiliar to us. Um, But it appears that there reached a particular point when a child was no longer breastfed. And it's like, okay, that's the end of that. And from now on you're going to eat solid food, you're going to eat like a little person, Uh, you're no longer going to be a baby or an infant being breastfed. Um, And 
apparently in those days it was marked by a special occasion. This was, the child has reached a certain point, no longer to be breastfed, but now considered a child and, and not an infant. In the case of Isaac, the son of promise, there's a feast. It's a big celebration. From this time on, Isaac will no longer be breastfed. Um, by the way, let me go back to Hannah, because this is also a part of her story, 1 Samuel chapter 1. When the man Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, Elkanah, her husband told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. It leads us to believe that the age of being weaned was about three years old, um, maybe a little older than that, but uh, Samuel is still young when she takes him uh, to be with Eli the priest. And so Isaac is, we would say, probably about three years old at this point when he is weaned. But Ishmael is not happy. He mocks him. If you do the dates, if you remember, um, Ishmael was circumcised at the age of 13. A year later, Isaac is born, so he's 14. And then if you add three years when he is weaned, he is 17 years old. Um, he's not happy about being pushed aside. He is the firstborn son. He's not adopted. He's not an intruder. He is Abraham's son. He's 17 years old, at least at this point. And now here's this little infant, this boy, this three-year-old, and he is the special child. He's not even the first child. He's not even the first son. But there's a problem. Even though Ishmael was born to the man of promise, he is not the son of promise. The nature of the mocking is not clear. And some translations say that he laughed at Isaac, which makes it seem somewhat harmless. But Paul tells us in Galatians 4, okay, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way was persecuted by the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. The son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. And so there's the word that Paul uses is persecuted. We, fought, we find here is mocking him. Uh, whatever it was, Sarah was not happy about it. And she says to Abraham, interestingly enough, not your wife, because she gave Hagar to him to be his wife, and not your son, but in fact, the slave woman and her son, not your son, her son, they've got to go, Okay. They will not share in the inheritance of my son. I don't think that Sarah's motives were pure, but what she said was exactly correct. Isaac is the, ch the son of promise, the son of the covenant. Okay? So what belongs to him belongs to him and him alone, not to Ishmael. 
And so, so that there's no confusion, Ishmael and his mother need to leave. Um, you may remember it was actually Sarah's idea that, that Abraham sleep with Hagar and have a son by her, and then Sarah could say, this is my son. Well, now she's had her own son. She's very clear. He's not my son. He has to go. My son is the heir. Um, Sarah's unhappy. Abraham is unhappy. Ishmael is his son. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. And you can say what you want about Hagar. Ishmael is his flesh and blood. This is his son. But then God says something to him that on the face of it is quite confusing. Uh, God said to him, don't be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Really? Uh, Listen to whatever Sarah tells you. Really? I mean, up to this point, her track record hasn't been very good. Uh, She's the one who brought this whole situation about. Um, And again, I don't think that Sarah's motives were necessarily pure. She's not thinking, oh, the promises will be fulfilled through my son and it will end up with Messiah, you know, centuries later. No, she's like, my son is special. He's not. Hagar and Ishmael have to leave. Um, God knows her heart. He knows that her motives are less than pure. But his plan, in fact, does not include Ishmael. It is Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob and his 12 sons. And so Ishmael is not a part of God's plan. Um, But God hadn't forgotten Ishmael, had he? In verse number 13, I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also because he is your offspring. Um, This is something I hadn't noticed before. Yes, I know that Ishmael would be made into a great nation, but why? Verse 13, because he is your offspring. He is Abraham's son. So Abraham sends them off. And I would say rather poorly, in my opinion. Uh, Verse 14, early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent sent her off with the boy. Um, Something to point out, early the next morning. Okay, we'll see this in a few minutes in the next chapter. Uh, Abraham did not procrastinate. Um, whatever he's told to do, he does it right away. He does it resolutely. And God said, they've got to go. Early the next morning, he sends them off. But no animal, no pack animal, not a bunch of food, just a skin of water uh, and some, some food. And that's it. And apparently she gets, she gets uh, lost. She wandered in the desert of Beersheba and she runs out of food and she runs out of water. And one can't help but wonder, um, couldn't Abraham have done better by her? Well, they run out of water. She puts Ishmael under a bush. She can't, can't stand to see him die. She goes over somewhere else and she sobs. She's convinced that they're going to die. But then God hears the cry of the boy. And are we surprised? Do you remember what Ishmael means? Anyone remember? 
God hears. God heard her crying. He heard Ishmael's crying. He opened her eyes and said, and she could see that there was a well. She was able to get water and she and the boy were preserved. And then again, we're told something fascinating in verse number 20. God was with the boy as he grew up. Abraham may have abandoned him, but God had not. And there he gained fame as an archer, and his mother, who was an Egyptian, finds him a wife in Egypt, and he now has a wife. I would just point out that Hagar's life has not been easy. It's been full of trouble, and most of it not of her making. It all began with Abraham went down to Egypt, which I think he should not have done. It was a lapse of faith on his part. It continued when he accepted gifts from Pharaoh, and I think that Hagar was one of those gifts, men servants and maidservants. Uh, it continued when Sarah came up with this brilliant idea, why don't you sleep with Hagar, and then we can have a son, and we can call him our son. And yet, though she is, in a sense, the victim of other people's bad decisions, God is with her. He revealed himself to her. You are the God who sees, she said. She's actually confronted face to face by the pre-incarnate Christ. She has a son. His name means God hears. And for all the trouble she has been through, she is in a unique position that she is someone who has spoken to God and God has spoken to her. There were, in the title of this series, there were trials and there was grace. And for all the trials that she endured, God was gracious to her and her son. Then we come to the last part of chapter 21. And for me, my question is, why is this even here? This almost seems to have no part. We're going along with the story pretty well, and then suddenly we have this almost should be a parenthetical passage. Um, Look, if you would, beginning of verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me in the country where you are living in as an alien the same kindness I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I only heard of it today. I heard about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba, because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Pekul, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the Eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. As I said, the first question that comes to mind is, why is this here? Um, And why is this relevant? I mean, what's going on here? 
let me suggest some possible reasons. First of all, we already know about Abimelech, don't we? That Abraham had lied to him and that Abimelech had taken Sarah to be part of his household. Okay? They lied about the nature of the relationship. But God reveals himself to Abimelech and says, listen, you've taken a married woman. So he's in a unique position because God, in fact, has spoken to him. This provides the backdrop to what we're seeing. Abimelech says to him, by the way, when he gives Sarah back, the land is before you. you know, live wherever you want. Okay? And among the promises that God made to Abraham, it's now recognized by Abimelech, God is with you in everything you do. So Abimelech, not only has God spoken to him and he has spoken to God, he recognizes God's promises being fulfilled in Abraham that God is with you in everything that you do. Now he wants that promise from Abraham. Okay? Swear to me before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. You know, show the same kindness to me that I have shown to you. And Abraham says, I swear, I, that's what I will do. Sounds like a smart move, right? No, because not everything is good. In verse number 25, then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water. Um, English translations don't give this the, the meaning that it has. and that This was not a one-time complaint. Abraham kept trying to complain to Abimelech, and definitely Abimelech has been evading Abraham. And finally, Abraham pins him down and says, listen, uh, I've got, a, I've got a beef with you that I dug a well here and your people aren't allowing us to use it. Um, so they agree to settle the matter. Abraham takes initiative and he, in essence, establishes a covenant, a treaty between him and Abimelech. And he brings with him sheep and cattle, but particularly he sets aside seven ewe lambs. These are the sign of the treaty. Beersheba means well of seven or well of the oath. In both cases, it's true. We have the seven ewe lambs saying this well belongs to Abraham. And we have the covenant, the oath that says this belongs to Abraham. It also is important for another reason. And that is as time goes on, when Israel comes in and takes the land, the geography of it is from Dan to the north, Beersheba in the south. These are the boundaries of the promised land. And it is in Beersheba where Abraham and his family stay for a while. Bimelech goes home. Abraham plants a tree and he calls on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. Uh, by the way, the eternal God is something we will hear centuries later in Isaiah 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not, or he will not grow weary, or tired, and his understanding no one can fathom. One more thing, and then we'll get to chapter 22. This incident between Abraham and Abimelech is going to happen again between Abimelech and Isaac. Now, I don't want to be paranoid uh, or cynical. But I take from this that as God's people, we should not be surprised when promises are made to us and they are not kept. The promises made by Abimelech to Abraham, 
he in fact does not keep them to Isaac. But we are to be people who keep promises. And Abraham is the one who initiates the promise keeping, if you wish. Here, here are animals. Here are seven ewe lambs. Let's make this agreement between us. Okay, now we come to chapter 22. And this is perhaps the best known story of Abraham's life, of Abraham and Isaac. I find it astonishing and in many ways quite puzzling. As we read this passage and study it, consider Abraham, how he responds to the command of God with love and faith, how he willingly surrenders his son, reflecting God's greater love and giving us a first glimpse of resurrection. But then also I want you to consider Isaac. He seemed almost as the passive victim here. We should see him not by what he does, but what he suffers. Others in the Old Testament will do great things. They will have many exploits, things that they do. But here he is the quiet victim. He demonstrates God's pattern for his chosen seed, that in fact the servant to be sacrificed would be God's own son. Reminds us of the passage in Isaiah 53. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Verses 1 and 2. Some time later, so we don't know the exact time, some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. The reader is told at the outset that this is a test. Abraham doesn't know this is a test. Okay, He doesn't know this is a test of his faith. Um, He answers the Lord's call. It almost echoes what we when God calls to Adam. You know, Adam's hiding. But he says, Abraham, and he goes, here I am. Okay. And then notice how God refers to Isaac. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Yes, Isaac is his son, but he's not his only son, is he? I mean, that's what chapter 21 was about. Ishmael is his son as well. But this is the son whom you love. It's a wonderful way to describe Isaac. Isaac is the son of promise, through whom the promises will be fulfilled. And it is through Isaac that, in fact, one day God will say of Jesus, this is my son whom I love. It happens at the baptism. It happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is your son whom you love. You know, if if he didn't care about his son, then to do what God is going to tell him to do might not seem like a big thing. But he is directed to go to the region of Moriah, the area of Jerusalem. Um, by the way, we're told in Second Chronicles 3 that where Solomon built the temple was on Mount Moriah. Okay, So it's prefiguring the time when the temple will be built. And then the unbelievable instructions. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Don't simply kill him, but burn up his body on an altar. How did Abraham respond? Early the next morning. He doesn't 
procrastinate. It's like, boy, did, did I just eat some spicy food and had a bad dream and maybe this isn't really what God said? He took God at his word and he got up early the next morning, saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Now for me comes the real trial. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. You know, the task God had given him was impossible, impossibly difficult, to kill and sacrifice his son whom he loves, the son of promise. But to have to think about it for three days, to travel for three days, with every step like, I'm going to a place where I'm going to kill and burn up my son's body. I suspect that this was the hardest part of the test. If God had said, kill your son right now, that Abraham might have been able to do that, you know, without thinking too much. But he's had three days to think about this and how difficult that must have been. But then look at verse 5. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham refers to what is about to happen. As far as he knows, he's going to kill Isaac and burn up his body as an act of worship. But then there's more. He says, and then we'll come back to you. Um, One might say, well, no, you're not coming back if you're going to sacrifice Isaac. More on this in a bit. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. Um, as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke. We'll come to this in a minute. But does this not, in fact, prefigure Christ? In John 19, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Isaac carries the wood that his body is going to be put on and, and if everything goes as God says, he is going to be killed and his body is going to be burned up. He carries a part of the instrument of execution as Jesus did with his cross. Anyway, as they're walking together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. This is the only conversation recorded in scripture between Abraham and Isaac. It's the only conversation, and it is theological in nature. Um, Isaac has some knowledge of what a sacrifice means when you're worshiping God. There are at least three things necessary. Wood, fire, and the animal, the lamb that is to be sacrificed. By the way, side note, I think this is another example that we are not told everything. Not everything is recorded in scripture. But I would say that God must have given instructions to Abraham about how to worship him with sacrifice. And Isaac knows this information. So he knows how this, how this you have an altar, you have wood, you put the animal, you kill the animal, you put it on the wood, and then with the fire you burn it up. That's how we worship God. 
Scripture tells us what we need to know. It doesn't tell us everything we want to know. And then we have the powerful words of Abraham. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The King James has, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Verse 9, when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Can't we help but be struck by Isaac's obedience, his willing obedience? I mean, no doubt, Abraham's job is hard. He's going to have, in a few minutes, he's going to have to kill his son. But it seems that Isaac doesn't fight him. He doesn't push back. He allows his dad to tie his hands and put him on the altar. How could Abraham do this? Well, in faith, he was prepared to obey God's word. But then he is stopped. Verse 19, I'm sorry, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there was in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Here is the substitutionary death. Instead of Isaac dying, it is a ram. God, in fact, has provided not a lamb but a ram. And Abraham sacrifices it. Verse 14, so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. It's Mount Moriah, Abraham renames it as the place the Lord will provide. And the name continued. Then the promise is repeated. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. So the angel of the Lord is in fact the Lord. Because, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. The promise is repeated. And a man who previously was driven by fear has obeyed God. And just as he told his servants, we will worship and then we will come back to you. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. What we've seen today in these two chapters are a series of amazing events. First of all, Isaac is born. The Lord had visited Sarah. Hagar and Ishmael are cast out. A treaty is made with Abimelech who recognized that the Lord was with Abraham. And then there's the call to sacrifice his son and Abraham's obedience. 
One might wonder at calling the casting out of Hagar and Ishmael as amazing. But the point is made throughout these two chapters that it is through the son of promise, the miracle child, if you wish, born to a 90-year-old woman whose husband is 100 years old, it is through them, through this child, that God's promises would be kept. Going back to chapter 12, when the first promises were made, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's the Messiah. That's the true blessing. Salvation will come through Abraham, Sarah, and then their son, Isaac. But when we read chapter 22, when I read chapter 22, how did Abraham do this? How did he do this? You've waited, and 25 years later, the promise is kept. You have a son. And then the son that you have, God says, kill him. Kill him and burn him up. And Abraham is prepared to do as God tells him. Early the next morning, he gets up and he goes. How is this possible? Well, in Hebrews 11, the chapter of faith, this is what we read. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. He's ready to kill him, even though God said it's through the son that the promises will be fulfilled. Abraham reasoned that God could raise him from the dead. That's why he tells the two servants, we're going to go up there, we're going to worship, and then we, the two of us, are coming back. He reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. He was prepared to kill Isaac and to offer him as a sacrifice. But God intervened, and there was a ram caught in the thicket. And that ram was sacrificed instead. Isaac is a type of the Lord Jesus. He is the son. This is my son whom I love, who is to be sacrificed. The big difference between Isaac and Jesus is that Jesus was put to death. He was killed. He was sacrificed. But then, in the same way that Abraham reasoned, God could raise him from the dead, God raised Jesus from the dead. And in this story, a man that has failed time and time again, we see him, by God's grace, acting in faith and being obedient. And Isaac, gentle Isaac, not a man of great exploits, but someone who willingly obeyed and was willing to obey his father even to the point of death. It is an amazing story, one that should encourage us. Let's pray together. Our Father, oftentimes when we think of the Old Testament, we think of stories for children, for Sunday school classes. These are stories for us. How you visited Sarah, you kept your word. 
how in difficult circumstances you preserved Hagar. You watched out over her son Ishmael. How you preserved Abraham even when Abimelech was less than vigilant in keeping his word. And then we have the story of Abraham and Isaac going to Mount Moriah. I cannot imagine how difficult this must have been for Abraham. But perhaps it was not as difficult as we imagined. He acted in faith. He trusted you. He knew that you kept your promises. We are the ones, I think, who stagger, who wonder whether or not you will keep your word when you do so day after day. For all that we have, all the gift you have given us, we still doubt, we are still fearful. May we, by your grace, follow in the steps of our father Abraham and act in faith and trust that you know what is best. Thank you for bringing us together today, for keeping us through this past storm. We're told more rain is to come. As we walk through the world in this coming week, may we have a sense of your presence. Just as you were there with Abraham on Mount Moriah, you're with us every step of the way. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.